This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. Hello. A number of reports this time relating to the middle of July. Starting in 1918 on the 16th of July and Pavel Medvedev's report on the execution of Tsar Nicholas II and the Russian imperial family. Now the provincial government had intended to send the royal family to England but this was opposed by the Petrograd Soviet and they were taken instead to Ekaterinburg which is now Sverdlovsk in the Urals. When white Russian forces approached this area, the local authorities were ordered to prevent a rescue. In the evening of July the 16th, between 7 and 8 p.m., when the time for my duty had just begun, Commandant Yurovsky, the head of the guard, ordered me to take all the Nagan revolvers from the guards and to bring them to him. I took 12 revolvers from the sentries, as well as from some other guards, and brought them to the commot. Commandant's office. Yurovsky said to me, we must shoot them all tonight, so notify the guards not to be alarmed if they hear shots. I understood, therefore, that Yurovsky had it in his mind to shoot the whole of the Tsar's family, as well as the doctor and the servants who live with them, but I did not ask him where or by whom the decision had been made. I must tell you that in accordance with Yurovsky's orders, the boy who assisted the cook was transferred in the morning to the guardroom in the Popov house. The lower floor of Ipatiev's house was occupied by the Letts from the Letts commune, who had taken up their quarters there after Yurovsky was made commandant. They were ten in number. At about ten o'clock in the evening, in accordance with Yurovsky's orders, I informed the guards not to be alarmed if they should hear firing. About midnight, Yurovsky woke up the Tsar's family. I do not know if he told them the reason they had been awakened and where they were to be taken, but I positively affirm that it was Yurovsky who entered the rooms occupied by the Tsar's family. Yurovsky had not ordered me or Dobrin to awaken the family. In about an hour, the whole of the family, the doctor, the maid and the waiters got up, washed and dressed themselves. Just before Yurovsky went to awaken the family, two members of the Extraordinary Commission of the local Soviet arrived at Ipatiev's house. Shortly after 1 o'clock a.m., the Tsar, the Tsaritsa, their four daughters, the maid, the doctor, the cook and the waiter left their rooms. The Tsar carried the heir in his arms. The emperor and the heir were dressed in soldiers' shirts and wore caps. The empress and her daughters were dressed but their heads were uncovered. The emperor, carrying the heir, preceded them. The empress, her daughters and the others followed. Yurovsky, his assistant and the two above-mentioned members of the Extraordinary Commission accompanied them. I was also present. During my presence, none of the Tsar's family asked any questions. They did not weep or cry. Having descended the stairs to the first floor, we went out into the court and from there, by the second door, counting from the gate, we entered the ground floor of the house. When the room, which adjoins the storeroom with a sealed door, was reached, Yurovsky ordered chairs to be brought, and his assistant brought three chairs. One chair was given to the emperor, one to the empress, and the third to the heir. The empress sat by the wall by the window near the black pillar of the arch, 
Behind her stood three of her daughters. I knew their faces very well, because I'd seen them every day when they walked in the garden, but I didn't know their names. The heir and the emperor sat side by side, almost in the middle of the room. Dr. Botkin stood behind the heir. The maid, a very tall woman, stood at the left of the door leading to the storeroom. By her side stood one of the Tsar's daughters, the fourth. Two servants stood against the wall on the left from the entrance of the room. The maid carried a pillow. The Tsar's daughters also brought small pillows with them. One pillow was put on the Empress's chair, another on the heir's chair. It seemed as if all of them guessed their fate, but not one of them uttered a single sound. At this moment, eleven men entered the room. Yurovsky, his assistant, two members of the Extraordinary Commission, and seven lets. Yurovsky ordered me to leave, saying, Go on to the street, see if there's anybody there, and wait to see whether the shots have been heard. I went out to the court, which was enclosed by a fence, but before I got to the street, I heard the firing. I returned to the house immediately, only two or three minutes having elapsed, and upon entering the room where the execution had taken place, I saw that all the members of the Tsar's family were lying on the floor with many wounds in their bodies. The blood was running in streams. The doctor, the maid and two waiters had also been shot. When I entered, the air was still alive and moaned a little. Yurovsky went up and fired two or three more times at him. Then the air was still. Next we go to the Daily Telegraph of July the 21st, 1863, and our own correspondence report from New York, posted on the 7th of July, about the Battle of Gettysburg. At Gettysburg, General Lee's army has received the most disastrous check which has yet been recorded in its history, and the second formidable attempt to invade the loyal states may terminate in a failure more signal than that which closed the Confederate campaign in Maryland. Gettysburg can hardly have cost General Lee less than 25,000 of his best troops in killed, wounded and prisoners, while the federal loss cannot reach more than half that figure. But in spite of this enormous list of casualties, enough almost to have turned back an ordinary army in irretrievable rout and disorder, the wounded Federals who witnessed its departure from Gettysburg state that it marched out of the town in solid column, as if it were ordered to dress for parade. The fact speaks volumes for the efficiency of the discipline in General Lee's army. The pontoon bridges across the Potomac may be destroyed and the fords made impassable by the recent heavy rains. General Lee may be, as Governor Curtin says he is, short of ammunition and suffering for supplies, yet an army which could carry with it from such a bloody field as that of Gettysburg all its artillery must still be in a condition to protect itself from General Meade's forces, which are now wearied out with their long marches and exhausted with their terrible struggles in the battlefield. Now we have a report from July 1792 by Grace Elliott of Marie Antoinette at the Opera. After the 20th of June, the people who wish well to the King and Queen were desirous that Her Majesty should sometimes appear in public, accompanied by the Dauphin, a most interesting, beautiful child, and her charming daughter, Madame Royale. In consequence of this, she went to the Comédie Italienne with her children, Madame Elizabeth, the King's sister, and Madame Tourzel, governess to the royal children. 
This was the very last time on which Her Majesty appeared in public. I was there in my own box, nearly opposite the Queen's, and as she was so much more interesting than the play, I never took my eyes off her and her family. The opera which was given was Epravu, and Madame du Garzon played the soubrette. Her Majesty, from her first entering the house, seemed distressed. She was overcome, even by the applause, and I saw her several times wipe the tears from her eyes. The little Dauphin, who sat on her knee the whole night, seemed anxious to know the cause of his unfortunate mother's tears. She soon seemed to soothe him, and the audience appeared well disposed, and to feel for the cruel situation of their beautiful queen. In one of the acts of a duet is sung by the soubrette and the valet, where Madame du Gazon says, Ah, comme j'ai ma maîtresse! As she looked particularly at the Queen at the moment she said this, some Jacobins who had come into the playhouse leapt upon the stage, and if the actors had not hid Madame du Gazon, they would have murdered her. They hurried the poor Queen and family out of the house, and it was all the guards could do to give them safe passage into their carriages. We go right back to 922 AD, and a Viking funeral... The uh, author is Iban Fadlan. I was told that the least of what they do for their chiefs when they die is to consume them with fire. When I was finally informed of the death of one of their magnets, I sought to witness what befell. First, they laid him in his grave, over which a roof was erected, for the space of ten days until they had completed the cutting and sewing of his clothes. In the case of a poor man, however, they merely built for him a boat in which they place him and consume it with fire. At the death of a rich man, they bring together his goods and divide them into three parts. The first of these is for his family, the second is expended for the garments they make, and with the third they purchase strong drink against the day when the girl resigns herself to death and is burned with her master. To the use of wine, they abandon themselves in mad fashion, drinking it day and night, and not seldom does one die with the cup in his hand. When one of the chiefs dies, his family asks his girls and pages, which one of you will die with him? Then one of them answers, I. From the time that he utters this word, he is no longer free. Should he wish to draw back, he's not permitted. For the most part, however, it is the girls that offer themselves. So when the man of whom I spoke had died, they asked his girls who will die with him. One of them answered, I. She was then committed to two girls who were kept to keep watch over her, accompany her wherever she went, and even on occasion, wash her feet. The people now began to occupy themselves with the dead man, to cut out the clothes for him and to prepare whatever else was needful. During the whole of this period, the girl gave herself over to drinking and singing and was cheerful and gay. When the day was now come that the dead man and the girl were to be committed to the flames, I went to the river in which his ship lay, but found that it had already been drawn ashore. Four corner blocks of birch and other woods had been placed in position for it, while around were stationed large wooden figures in the semblance of human beings. Thereupon the ship was brought up and placed on the timbers above mentioned. In the meantime the people began to walk to and fro, uttering words which I didn't understand. The dead man, meanwhile, lay at a distance in his grave, from which they had not yet removed him. Next they brought a couch, placed it in the ship, and covered it with Greek cloth of gold, wadded and quilted with pillows of the same material. 
there came an old crone whom they call the Angel of Death and spread the articles mentioned on the couch. It was she who attended to the sewing of the garments and to all the equipment. It was she also who was to slay the girl. I saw her. She was dark, thick-set, with a lowering countenance. When they came to the grave, they removed the earth from the wooden roof, set the latter aside, and drew out the dead man in the loose wrapper in which he had died. Then I saw that he had turned quite black, by reason of the coldness of that country. Near him in the grave they had placed strong drink, fruits, and a lute, and these they now took out. Except for his colour, the dead man had not changed. They now clothed him in drawers, leggings, boots, and a kurtak and chaftan of gold, which, with golden buttons placed on his head, a cap made of cloth of gold, trimmed with sable. Then they carried him into a tent, placed it in the ship, seated him on the wadding and quilted covering, supported him with the pillows, and bringing strong drink, fruits and basil, placed them all beside him. Then they brought a dog, which they cut in two, and threw it into the ship, laid all his weapons beside him, and led up two horses, which they chased until they were dripping with sweat, whereupon they cut them in pieces with their swords, and threw the flesh into the ship. Two oxen were then brought forward, cut in pieces, and flung into the ship. Finally, they brought a cock and a hen, killed them, and threw them in also. The girl, who had devoted herself to death meanwhile, walked to and fro, entering one after another of the tents which they had there. The occupant of each tent lay with her, saying, Tell your master, I did this only for the love of you. When it was now Friday afternoon, they led the girl to an object which they had constructed and which looked like the framework of a door. She then placed her feet on the extended hands of the men, was raised up above the framework and uttered something in her language, whereupon they let her down. Then again they raised her, and she did as at first. Once more they let her down and then lifted her a third time while she did as at the previous. They then handed her a hen whose head she cut off and threw away, but the hen itself they cast into the ship. I inquired of the interpreter what it was she had done. He replied, The first time she said, Lo, I see here my father and mother. The second, Lo, now I see all my deceased relatives sitting. And the third, Lo, there is my master who is sitting in paradise. Paradise is so beautiful, so green. With him are his men and boys. He calls me to bring him to him. Then they led her away to the ship. Here she took off her two bracelets and gave them to the old woman who was called the Angel of Death and who was to murder her. She also drew off her two anklets and passed them to the two serving maids who were the daughters of the so-called Angel of Death. Then they lifted her into the ship but did not yet admit her to the tent. Now men came up with shields and staves and handed her a cup of strong drink. This she took, sang over it and emptied it. With this, so the interpreter told me, she is taking leave of those who are dear to her. Then another cup was handed her, which she also took, and began a lengthy song. The crone admonished her to drain the cup without lingering and to enter the tent where her master lay. By this time, as it seemed to me, the girl had become dazed. She made as though she would enter the tent and had brought her head forward between the tent and the ship when the hag seized her by the head and dragged her in. At this moment, the men began to beat upon their shields with their staves and in order to drown out the noise of her outcries, which might have terrified the other girls and deterred them from seeking death with their masters in the future. Then six men, 
followed into the tent, and each and every one had carnal companionship with her. Then they laid her down by her master's side, while two of the men seized her by the feet and two by the hands. The old woman, known as the Angel of Death, now knotted a rope around her neck and handed the ends to two of the men to pull. Then with a broad-bladed dagger she smote her between the ribs and drew the plate forth, while the two men strangled her with the rope till she died. The next of kin to the dead man now drew near and taking a piece of wood lighted it and walked backwards towards the ship, holding the stick in one hand with the other placed upon his buttocks, he being naked, until the wood which had been piled under the ship was ignited. Then the others came up with staves and firewood, each one carrying a stick already lighted at the upper end and threw it all on the pyre. The pyre, but the pile was soon aflame and then the ship Finally the tent, the man, the girl, and everything else in the ship. A terrible storm began to blow up, and this intensified the flames and gave wings to the blaze. We have two more reports this time. The first from July the 20th, 1870, and the Daily Telegraph. On Monday, July the 18th, 1870, the infallibility of the Pope was declared at a public sitting of the Ecumenical Council of the Vatican. Today, Pope Pius IX is probably the happiest man in Europe for this declaration of his personal immunity from error in faith and morals. For month after month has the Council delayed the proclamation of its decree that the Pope is infallible when he speaks ex cathedra on questions of faith and morals but at last it might have seemed as if the political forces of the world had combined to produce the necessity of haste. Out of a clear sky came a clap of thunder, and the storm which was gathering thick over France and Prussia might at any time break over Italy. What will be the result with this within the several Christian churches? The answer must be that for most part they will view the decree with profound indifference. In the synods and general assemblies of Protestantism, it will provoke no discussion. The Upper House of Convocation has indeed appointed a committee to watch the proceedings of the Vatican, but the step was taken in opposition to the Council of Prelates, who carry out such weight as the Bishop of Gloucester and the Bishop of London, and it has scarcely been noticed by the mass of the nation. Only one section of the English church regards the dogmatic verdict with interest or apprehension, and that is the ultra-high church section, which is separated from Rome by almost inappreciable distinctions of doctrine. That party craves union with Rome and is ready to recognise the ecclesiastical authority which belongs to the Pope by virtue of his primacy among Christian bishops. The same party is ready, moreover, to recognise the infallible authority of a real ecumenical council, that is, a council fully representing the Latin, the Greek and the Anglican branches of the Church. But it is not prepared to admit that the Pope is infallible when he speaks apart from a general council. Thus, the proclamation of the decree has, for the present, placed an insuperable barrier between Rome and the section of Anglicans represented by the English Church Union. Our final report is the most recent from the 21st of July, 1969, and is by Neil Armstrong and Edwin E. Aldrin. Apollo 11, carrying Neil, 
Lieutenant Colonel Michael Collins and Colonel Edwin Audrin was launched on the 16th of July at 0356 British summertime on the 21st of July, Armstrong stepped off the ladder of lunar landing vehicle Eagle onto the moon. Armstrong writes, The most dramatic recollections I had were the sights themselves. Of all the spectacular views we had, the most impressive to me was on the way to the moon when we flew through its shadow. We were still thousands of miles away, but close enough so that the moon almost filled our circular window. It was eclipsing the sun from our position, and the corona of the sun was visible around the limb of the moon as gigantic lens-shaped or saucer-shaped light stretching out to several lunar diameters. It was magnificent, but the moon was even more so. We were in its shadow, so there was no part of it illuminated by the sun. It was illuminated only by earthshine. It made the moon appear blue-grey, and the entire scene looked decidedly three-dimensional. I was really aware, visually aware, that the moon was in fact a sphere, not a disc. It almost seemed as if it was showing us its roundness, its similarity to shape to our Earth, in a sort of welcome. I was sure that it would be hospitable host. It had been awaiting its first visitors for a long time. After touchdown, the sky is black, you know. It's a very dark sky. But it still seemed more like daylight than darkness as we looked out of the window. It's a peculiar thing, but the surface looked very warm and inviting. It was the sort of situation in which you felt like going out there in nothing but a swimming suit to get a little sun. From the cockpit, the surface seemed to be tan. It's hard to account for that because later, when I held this material in my hand, it wasn't tan at all. It was black, grey and so on. It's some kind of lighting effect but out the window the surface looks much more like light desert sand than black sand. And Edwin Audrin's thoughts from the moon. The blue colour of my boot has completely disappeared now into this, well, still don't know exactly what colour to describe this other than greyish cocoa colour. It appears to be covering most of the lighter part of my boot. Very fine particles. Later on he wrote, the moon was a very natural and pleasant environment in which to work. It had many of the advantages of zero gravity, but it was in a sense less lonely than zero G, where you always have to pay attention to securing attachment points to give you some means of leverage. In one-sixth gravity on the moon, you had a distinct feeling of being somewhere. As we deployed our experiments on the surface, we had to jettison things like lanyards, retaining fasteners, etc. And some of these we tossed away. The objects would go away with a slow, lazy motion. If anyone tried to throw a baseball back and forth in that atmosphere, he would have difficulty. At first, acclimatising himself to that slow, lazy trajectory. But I believe he could adapt to it quite readily. Odour is very subjective, but to me there was a distinct smell to the lunar material, pungent, like gunpowder or spent cat pistol caps. We carted a fair amount of lunar dust back inside the vehicle with us, either on our suits and boots or on the conveyor system we used to get boxes and equipment back inside. We did notice the odour right away.
listening to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Lumley. The music was by Eric Matias, www.soundimage.org. <laughs>